Welcome back to Tapping Into Crypto, the podcast for all things cryptocurrency. If you've listened to our crypto catch up this week, you will know that our friends at SwiftX have just launched a new feature called Earn. Now, we've had so many questions through the gram asking what this feature is, how it differs to staking, and it's been a while since we've done a Q&A episode. So if you've got any questions on Earn or crypto in general at the moment, send them through and we will see if we can get the man himself on to answer some of these for you. Now, today, with all that's happening in the market, interest rate increases and some big international plays, we thought there was no better episode than to throw back to our chat with Raul Powell about macroeconomics and zooming out. This is one of my personal all-time favorite episodes. And whether you're a beginner, a Bitcoin veteran, or just crypto curious, I am your host, Alicia Chapman, and this is Tapping Into Crypto. Welcome to the podcast, Ralph Pal. It is so wonderful to have you here with us today. Fabulous to be here. Thanks for asking me. Now, most people will have heard of you before, but I'd love to hear in your own words. We've explained what Real Vision is in our intro, but how did that journey come about? What led to you creating Real Vision? Yeah, that journey was, look, I, I was at the epicenter of financial markets for my career. So I was working at Goldman Sachs where I was running a hedge fund sales business in equities and equity derivatives. I was then running a big hedge fund, global macro hedge fund, trading all assets around the world. And then it was about 2005, I kind of opted out of the rat race and moved to the Mediterranean coast of Spain and started writing macroeconomic research and investment strategy. And by about 2006, seven, I was worried that we were going to have a big financial event because so much debt had happened in the global economy. And I thought that if we had a recession, which looked like it was coming, it was going to blow up. So I started writing about it and kind of told what was happening and forecast it. And then people would come up to me in the street or friends of friends or friends of my parents say, well, why didn't we know? I'm like, why did some of us in the middle of the financial system have all the information and everybody else didn't? Yeah. And then along comes the European debt crisis, 2012 where we almost lost the entire European banking system all over again, and whole governments were going bust. And again, I saw that coming, had been writing about it. You know, The people who subscribed to Global Macro Investor were kind of well prepared for it. But ordinary people, people who lost their life savings when I was living in Spain, were like, well, why didn't we know? Why did nobody tell us? And I thought I had to do something about this, because it wasn't fair that some people have all the information, others don't. So I thought about it for a while and then decided that starting a kind of a video platform was the way to do it. And that was 2014. It was well before most of the podcasts, all the video stuff. And we decided what we were going to do was going to give ordinary people access to the world's most successful investors and the world's best analysts, strategists, and give them the same access that all of the hedge funds got who could see the crisis coming. And so that was the birth of Real Vision. And we've been doing that for a long time now, and have built a huge followership in helping guide people in their financial journeys and democratizing that financial intelligence and not just keeping it for the few. It's incredible. And I think I love just the simplicity of it as well. You know, you do strive to really explain things in ways that everyone can understand, even beginners. So if you are really interested in this and you haven't found Real Vision, of course, we'll pop everything in the show notes, but it is such a great place to start your journey. Now, I really want to dive into 
macro investing because that's a term that a lot of people may not have heard. But before we do, the question that we ask everyone to the podcast is, what was your very first cryptocurrency purchase? My very first cryptocurrency purchase was Bitcoin in 2013. My gosh, how good. So you've been on the full journey and this full scope, seen all the highs, all the lows and everything in between. All the drama. Oh my goodness. And so macro investing, it is a term that people may not have heard of. Can you explain what that is and how that looks at markets? So macro investing is a way of looking at markets that's based around the global economy. Australians kind of get this because they understand that when the global economy is doing well, the Aussie dollar moves accordingly. It tends to do well. And when the global economy is not good, the Aussie dollar tends to do less well. If you've got family members abroad, people kind of know some of this stuff, right? That's macro investing. Betting in currencies. Australia is a natural resource-rich country. So they know that there's a mining boom when the global economy is strong, and let's say China's strong, and there's a mining bust when everyone spent too much money on mining and infrastructure when the global economy is weak or the Chinese economy is weak, whoever the main demand is, right? Those are the things that are macro investing. You're investing in asset classes. So it could be currencies, bond markets, stock markets. It could be commodity markets. could be whatever, but based around the economic state of the world. And because oddly enough, all financial markets are driven by the global economy or the local economy that you're in. So macro investing is looking at where the global economy is going and then making forecasts and betting accordingly on how do you want to take advantage of that. So you might want to think, well, I, th- I think the global economy is slowing down and therefore I think the central bank is going to cut interest rates. So maybe I can buy bonds. Maybe I can say, well, actually, I think the Australian dollar might weaken. So I'll sell the Aussie dollar. That's macro investing as opposed to, I really like this company and I think they're going to do well from their earnings. That's specific fundamental investing based around a single sector or single stock or whatever it may be. So it's much broader based. It kind of is everywhere. It's like the world's most beautiful puzzle. You're trying to solve all of the interrelationships between economies and markets and people all at the same time. And it's a puzzle you can only solve for brief moments in time, and then it disappears again and you start solving it all over again. Definitely. And how does that tie into, I guess, your crypto analyst and what you do in the crypto world? So. I got into crypto because of those two financial crises I've talked about, the twin back-to-back ones we had. I started thinking, okay, how do we find a way around this whole debt problem that we've got? And I was looking to start this world's safest bank was my ridiculous idea. And so I went around the world trying to work on that project. And somebody said, well, look at Bitcoin. Maybe this is a solution. So I looked at it and understood very quickly this technology was really interesting, both from this currency, Bitcoin, And blockchain itself is a way of storing all of these assets and having a recorded ownership because in a very debt-laden world, nobody knows who owns what when something goes wrong. So I saw that and then I started doing some analysis on it. Okay, what should this be worth? It was $200 at the time. And I said, well, if Bitcoin is based around, okay, there's a known supply of Bitcoin and there's a known amount that's still yet to be mined, well, that feels like gold to me because we know what the above ground supply of gold is and roughly what the world's reserves underground are. And so I kind of backed one into the other and thought, well, if gold is similar to Bitcoin, then when gold was at 1300 US dollars, 
Bitcoin should have been worth a million dollars and it was worth $200. So I said, okay, let's assume I'm an idiot and I'm wrong by 90%. So therefore it's worth $100,000 and it was only $200. So that is how you start thinking, okay, here's a macro bet. You've got a macro thesis, which is the global economy is slightly broken. You then have analysis of an opportunity that says, okay, well, this is worth a lot, potentially. And then when you understand that Bitcoin itself offers a way out of, let's say, the central banks printing too much currency called debasement of the currency, and it's a safe vehicle for keeping your money in because it's recorded, you know, always by this distributed ledger. So now you've got a macro thesis playing out. Then the pure final part of that is, yes, I've been involved and I was in and out for a while. But in 2020, I saw this pandemic coming and I realized that this macro investing world of looking at global economies was about to meet this crypto world of an asset that was really safe and secure and interesting that offers a new future. And the next time we had a recession, we're going to stress test the system again, and people would realize that we need to go to this new parallel system. So that was March 2020. The world blew up, and I went irresponsibly long and put all of my liquid net worth into crypto. Which paid off. It paid off pretty well. But that's how macro investing meets Bitcoin. And now today, what sort of macro influences are you looking at when you're analyzing what's going in the crypto market? The weird thing is crypto is not really correlated to a lot of things. The thing that's the biggest driver of the price of crypto is actually what's known as Metcalfe's Law, network effects. Because this is basically a network of money or a network of technology. And that's the same for Ethereum or Bitcoin or Solana or even NFTs. So how does that work? It's actually the number of people in the network and the number of connections between people in the network. So just so people can understand what I'm talking about, Facebook is a network effect model. You know, its price has risen so much over time because people join this network and they interconnect. They, you can have shopping on there, chatting to friends, you can launch businesses on there, advertising. So it's a very valuable network, much like your mobile phone network is very valuable. But in Facebook, you don't get to own any of that. Only the shareholders own it. So they got rich and the users didn't. In fact, they got abused by advertising. So network models are really interesting. So I use that as the framework of understanding. And then you're looking for the growth. How many people are joining this new crypto revolution. So that's how I use one side of it. The other side is, what are central banks doing? Are they printing money? If they're printing money, they're generally devaluing your purchasing power. So you want to have something that holds its power, something really scarce. And not everybody can afford high-end real estate in Sydney or you know expensive art, but they can own a fraction of a Bitcoin or some Ethereum, something that has value. So that combination of the network growth of this new technology, because we're finding new ways of using it, and this store of value against central bank debasement, well, that's very powerful. And that's how I look at it in a macro perspective nowadays. And that works across the whole crypto space, not just Bitcoin. And we are in a really interesting place right now, like that network effect. And I do love the way that you explain Metcalfe's law. Like, I think that is just such a fascinating concept if, if someone hasn't heard that before. And you can really see that play out. But as we're sitting today, it's just before the Fed decision as we're recording, and we have seen a pretty big dip in the market. How does that correlate and play into the two? Okay, so what is happening now? If I mentioned that crypto markets tend to do well when the central bank is printing money, well, we're going to a period where the central bank's talking about tightening money, i.e. printing less of it, or raising interest rates. So it means that 
It's the opposite of debasement. It's positive for the value of fiat currency. But there's another factor at play, because it's not as easy as that. There's another factor at play called the risk curve. So when interest rates go up, it becomes easier to own bonds because you own a bit more interest than you used to. So in which case, you might own more bonds and a little bit less of something else. And so that little bit less of something else means you're probably selling something. And that creates this cascading of selling something else, something else. And and cryptocurrency markets get caught up in this, what's known as a risk-off market, when, okay, we've got a macro backdrop that's not as positive. We've still got the network adoption. So if you remember, there was only two parts here, the network and the central bank. So the central bank is out of the equation or coming out of the equation, but the network thing is still growing. But we've just tilted it now with this central bank. So if the markets get unsettled, crypto gets unsettled. If you think of it, if you can only have, you know, $100 in one basket of stuff, and you're going to take something out, you have to replace it with something else. And so if you're buying bonds, you end up having to throw something else out. And if you've got too much risk in your portfolio, you're losing money in something, you tend to reduce your risk. So you tend to sell crypto, which is why it tends to correlate. It did very much in March 2020. Every market went down at the same time. And it's done so now as people have got nervous about this change in regime. One of the reasons people are getting nervous about the change of regime, I think, is that maybe it was too late for the central banks and the economy is already slowing. So in which case, if it's slowing and you're raising rates, you're going to cause economic weakness. And that makes people nervous as well. Definitely. And I think that's the thing that so many people will forget, especially if they're new to crypto, is that it's not just cryptocurrency that's being affected. If you look across the markets, every market they're all in a downturn right now. So it's not just isolated to the world of cryptocurrency, but we are obviously seeing a big hit there. No, but it's important to understand this because crypto is more risky. Why is it more risky? Because it's actually about the future and how big this network can be, this new future of money and Web 3.0 and all of this. So if the world's a bit uncertain, the things that are most uncertain move the most. So that's why it goes down a lot but you're compensated for it. So a 50% decline in crypto is kind of a once a year thing, right? We get used to it. But what crypto does is go up three times, four times. I think Ethereum was up 480% last year. So a 50% decline, 480, that's an eight times risk reward. Now in the stock market terms, stock markets fall 20% in a bear market, but they don't go up often 160% in a year. So it's telling you the risk reward of crypto, even though it's more volatile and looks scary, actually over time is much better. Leading into that, what sort of mindset do you suggest people take to ride through the ups and the downs and the hard times as well as the really great ones? Everybody approaches it first by saying, yes, this is a long-term thing. And yes, I understand that we're trying to look at this massive adoption where currently there's about 200 million users of cryptocurrencies. And I think by the end of 2025, we'll get close to a billion people just because the growth of number of people adopting this is faster than we adopted the internet. It's incredible. So people say that. So they buy some Bitcoin, let's say, and then it falls 30% and they panic. I'm like, no, if you're trying to make a five-year bet, make a five-year bet. And then you need to think, how am I doing that bet? Am I putting too much in in one go that I now can't sleep? What you need to do is be smaller or dollar cost average or DCA, you'll see it on Twitter and stuff, which means that you're accumulating over time, like you do with your super or any pension plan, you accumulate over time. You wouldn't throw all of your life savings into your super in one go and hope it works. 
So that's the same kind of mechanism that you have with this. So I think people then start to trade because it becomes very alluring because it moves around a lot. And you see on YouTube, you know, some Bitcoin millionaire who's made it from trading. You think, I can be that person. Uh What that is, is impatience. Is if you do that, the probability of you losing most of your money is extremely high. But just trust in the process that over time, on average, Bitcoin has gone up 200% a year on average and over 100% a year for the last six years, seven years. And in that, it's 80% bear markets too. And it still <laughs> perform like that. Yeah. That's what you need to think. And that's what you need to realize is approach it as a long-term way of investing, unless you're a super skilled, amazing short-term trader, which you're not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all think we are because we've seen everyone do it on YouTube and that guy on Instagram with the G-Wagon, I can be that too. Of course. Not that easy. So I really, really love that perspective. Now, I want to touch on where the future of all of this is going and kind of the really exciting tech that's coming out of all of this. But before we do, today, as we're chatting, it is speculation, but I do love the way that you speculate and I guess your long-term view on what's happening in the market. What do you think we're going to see from the Fed this year over 2022? I think the global economy and the US economy in particular is going to be weaker than people expect. So the market narrative is the Fed are going to hike four times and keep going. Maybe it's 50 basis points in March. And inflation's still not going to come down. That's the general market narrative. I think that's probably going to be wrong. I think the most likely outcome is the Fed at best managed to raise rates twice before the economy is too slow for them to raise and they pause. And maybe in the US, there's some more fiscal stimulus. Maybe it happens in other countries too. And a bit more printing comes back. We're very early after recession to stabilize and hike rates. Almost always, after a recession, such as one we've just had, is the economy looks really fast at first, and inflation looks red hot, and then it kind of naturally slows down because the governments have stopped stimulating, the central banks are stimulating less. And that slowdown after economy, after a recession, usually about a year or two afterwards, tends to make people think, oh my God, it's going to be another recession. It's really the economy, it's like bouncing a, a ball. It takes a while before it stabilizes. Yeah. So it takes a while before it stabilizes. So I think the central banks won't be raising rates as much as people think. And in fact, we might see the opposite. So I think it's going to be a good market for crypto over the year, which is, you know, people talk about the crypto cycle and is this the end of the four-year cycle? By my analysis, it's unlikely. could be. I can always be wrong. But it feels unlikely. It feels that we're going to have a supportive environment going forwards. I do think it's really interesting that so many people are trying to draw parallels between what's happening now with the GFC or with those previous recessions when, of course, there's similarities, but we've had a pandemic. Like, you know, that is so different to what we've ever gone through before. And so expecting it to go exactly the same way. I personally, I don't know if this is is right or not, but I don't think you could draw those exact parallels as a a previous event. No, I think we all have to say we don't know, right? We had an extraordinary event. And the world hasn't fully healed yet. And we just don't know what this means yet. And so we have to wait and see. I think the central banks are going to be more inclined to wait and see than they are to hike rates and snuff out an economy that's only just got back on its legs. Yeah. You know, it's like somebody coming out of a hospital. You don't ask them to do a marathon afterwards. Yeah. You know, maybe give them a Zimmer frame and let them walk around for a bit so they can yeah. get their legs. We have yeah. to do that. 
Yes, definitely. Now, I do want to pivot into something that I am currently very excited by. And I think a lot of our listeners are as well from the feedback that we've got. And that is that you are building the headquarters for Real Vision in the metaverse. Can you talk us through that process? Because it's just phenomenal. And I'm so excited to hear about it. Yeah. I mean, look, it's nothing fancy yet, but it was a statement of intent. We built it about five months ago. And it's in crypto voxels, which is one of these metaverses that's built on the blockchain. I wanted to show people, you know, how that process, I want to learn about it myself. Yeah. So bizarrely, the process is exactly the same as building a house. So you go to an architect. Yeah. And so we found an architect firm that's a crypto architect firm. And we gave them what we wanted. We wanted to design like a warehouse, old building, because everyone's doing futuristic. So we said, we wanted like an old London warehouse and we want to build a headquarters. And these are the kind of experiences we want in it. And they design it for you, build it, you buy the land as you would anywhere else. And then you deliver the metaverse experience. And then within that, you do your interior design. So within that, we wanted like a Real Vision merch store. We wanted an NFT gallery. So we asked, you know, a good friend of ours to, to select some of the greatest NFTs, ask the owners, can you display some of this stuff? We've got an auditorium where we can show video. We've got lots of mini TVs around with little Real Vision videos, Easter eggs, and you can walk around this world, meet other people in it, stuff like that. And it, you know, it's just there to show people, okay, it's possible and we're moving in this way. It's incredible. And I cannot wait to check it out a little bit more myself personally. Now, I think the way that you would talk about the metaverse, like you've mentioned this quite a few times on podcasts and videos and a lot of people feel like the metaverse is something that's so far away. You know, it's just so foreign and something that's not going to be, you know, for a few more years or even longer than that. But the way that you explain it is that we're actually living with so much of it right now. Can you explain that to our listeners if they haven't heard you talk about it? So wind back four years, you and I would not be able to do this. We're living in a digital experience. You're in Australia. I'm in the Cayman Islands. And we can talk in real time of a digital rendition. That's not you. This is not me. We're just a bunch of pixels. This is the metaverse. The metaverse is our lives moving more and more digital in everything we do. And that digitization has been consuming everything from newspapers to magazines to video, from film to television. Everything's getting digitized. Money is now being digitized. This is cryptocurrency. The system of value and transfer and everything is all being digitized. Artwork is now being digitized. That's NFTs. Music got digitized ages ago. So these are all building blocks to what the metaverse is, which is the digital world when the world we live in is predominantly digital. And that's not to mean this dystopian world where everyone got VR headsets and nobody speaks to each other. It doesn't have to be the ready player one world. It's just a world where everything is enhanced by digital connectivity and usability and all of the benefits that we've had. I mean, don't forget, post was physical. You have to get the postie to come and deliver it to you. And now it's an email. It's instantaneous and it's free. But these are all digital experiences. And the metaverse is where that all comes together, where we're spending most of our lives. I mean, I actually spend most of my life in the digital world because I'm sitting here in front of a Zoom screen, in front of my computer with my Bloomberg screen next to me. And that's like 12 hours of my day. That's basically digital. Now, the office that I'm in, well, that can be digitally rendered within a metaverse experience where I can have in my metaverse, instead of having a desktop and opening all your apps and all your stuff, maybe I can just organize it in one place. So it's, it's Raoul's world and I open it up and there it is as I want it to be. So that's the metaverse. The metaverse is gaming. 
But where the metaverse comes into its own is where all of these different worlds, whether it's your you know, worlds on your phone or mobile games or whether it's Fortnite or whatever digital experiences, when you can move between them. Mm. That interoperability is the key part. So I could move out of you know, Facebook's meta and be in crypto voxels and go here to there and my money and digital goods can move. Then it's a world. If not, it's an experience because I'm stuck in that one place. But once I can move my stuff around, I'm in a world. So this is what it is. It's kind of the digital fluid world where we live in a predominantly digital world. Yeah. And it's, as you say, we're doing it now. And I think that's the coolest part. And there is a, an amazing video uh, that's actually from Real Vision. And I'll pop the links in the show notes where you had a green screen behind and had, you know, the metaverse being displayed on that screen. And you're like walking through this really dark place. And I think that's the fun part of this, right? Like, you know, you can display your office behind you. And as you said, it's not always going to be wearing goggles and actually like walking to the water cooler, but it is just an extension of where we currently are. Yeah. So think about that just in context of what you and I are doing here. So maybe in the not too different future, we have a more 3D experience, right? So why not you and I decide where are we going to chat today? Should we do it on the beach? Do you want to do it in a ski lodge? Should we do it by fire? Do we do it in the middle of a forest? Do we do it in, in my room here? Right? So you come into my room there and digitally rendition, you're there. Now there's interesting, we're already seeing it. There was Oprah Winfrey interviews on Netflix. She did it during the pandemic. Fascinating. She was in a different location to the guests and you couldn't tell. No way. Yeah. And it looked like they were sitting face to face, but she was actually talking to a TV screen and Barack Obama was talking to a TV screen, but they could see each other. And then it was rendered within this space that looked like they were sitting around Oprah Winfrey's fire. And I'm like, oh my God, it is coming at us so fast. Don't forget, a lot of people watching this may have already attended a music event in the metaverse because that's happening at scales. So people are waiting for like, where's this big world? Who's going to be building this big world? It's like, no, 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 it's not that. It's not one world like Ready Player One. It is everything. We're starting to go to music events. We're starting to do all these different things all in the metaverse. It's so exciting. And talking about NFTs, which you just mentioned, you've got some in the headquarters. How much of what we've seen over the last 12 months do you think is hype and how much is going to be here to stay? So I think a lot of it is hype, but what we're doing is figuring out uses of NFTs. So we started seeing it with the kind of communities. So Board Ape Yacht Club, CryptoPunks, and then World of Women. There's all sorts of great projects where you're getting together this like-minded group of people who own a membership pass to the club, which is their NFT, and that's valuable. Then there's been the art world, people like Beeple selling digital art and then owning the future revenue stream of some of that art so if it sells. That was another big thing. But I'm talking to somebody else, a guy called Ben Mesrich, and, and he's creating NFTs around a screenplay that he's going to write about a film about NFTs. And he's pretty famous. He did the film The Social Network about Facebook, and he did um, one about um, Bitcoin billionaires against the Winklevosses, and tons of famous stuff he's done. But he sold NFTs to people who wanted to buy part of the script to be part of this journey of this thing. And okay, there's another big use case coming. Concert tickets. We're seeing tickets being recorded as NFTs. So imagine the most favorite concert you've ever been to, and you've got that program, or you've got an old ticket, and you stick it in a drawer, or you frame it. Well, the NFTs make it verifiable and exchangeable. They become really collectible. That's really interesting too. 
I think because NFTs are basically unique contracts. It can work for insurance contracts. It can work for all sorts of use cases we haven't even thought of yet. I think it's going to be head spinning in how many different variations. Because I think essentially real estate is going to be on NFTs. It's going to be tokenized because it's a unique asset whose ownership rights and transferability rights can be recorded on a blockchain. So why is it not going to be? Of course it will. When? I don't know. People are already doing it, but not at scale. So I think that some have a physical bridge, like Dolce Gabbana did one, where you could get both a physical item of clothing and there was a 4K renditioning in the um, Unreal Engine, this beautiful kind of 3D NFT. They did that, and you could have the physical and the NFT, and you could separate them. So you could sell the clothes and keep the NFT or vice versa. But then they also created purely digital clothing that could not exist in the real world. They gave it to their chief designers and say, design clothing with fabrics that could not exist in the real world, yeah. and then created an NFT, and now you can wear that in the metaverse. And it was gorgeous stuff. So all sorts of things are happening. Definitely. And we've just seen Lamborghini over the last few weeks bring out their collection of NFTs. feels like everybody is still doing it and still evolving in the way that they're going to interact with them. Yes. And I think a lot of people think it's free money right now. And they don't really understand that it's really about community building for a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And not everything has value. You know, McDonald's NFTs don't have value. Now, could they create one that does? Who knows? But we have to be careful that we're not just being sold to just another shiny object, another brand who wants to get another dollar out of our pocket. Yeah. You know, so there's different ways we need to look at it. So it's not clear yet. Yeah. A comment that was trending a few weeks ago is one that you made on an interview with Bankless Brazil, and it was talking about there being a reasonable chance that crypto could 100x and reach a $250 trillion asset class by 2030. Now, during that interview, you also mentioned that in order for that to happen, that 3.5 billion people would be using it. What sort of changes do you think we're going to need to see over the next few years to reach that level of adoption? So we talked about the rate of adoption before. So the crypto adoption is growing at about 115% a year, 113%. While the internet back in 1997, with roughly the same number of users, about 200 million, was growing at 63% a year. So we're growing almost twice as fast as the internet did. So if you just extrapolate those numbers and assume it slows down a bit to 83%, we get to a billion people by 2024. And then extrapolate the numbers, you get to three and a half billion by the end of the decade. And that's by assuming it slows down even further. So I'm not doing anything magic and not making any major forecasts. The other way I back that out is it's about a $2.5 trillion asset class now. If I look at global equities, global real estate, global bonds, they're all like $250 trillion. We're not talking about Bitcoin here. We're talking about the whole digital asset ecosystem. Well, if this is a new asset class that's exponentially growing in value and developments and everything else, then the probability of it getting to the same size as the other asset classes, pretty reasonable. And we're creating new worlds out of this, which is metaverses. So we're creating new opportunities. You know, you're not pulling stuff out of the ground and selling it now. You're creating stuff purely digitally. So yeah, kind of makes sense that it could get there. But simple things could get there is the moment the European Central Bank introduce a central bank digital currency. Now that's not people in Bitcoin, but it's the central bank of Europe saying, well, everyone, here's your digital rails. Now, everybody starts using that. What, there's 350 million people in Europe? China's just putting people on the central bank digital currency. That's coming out. 
Now, if they allow people to then interact in digital asset markets, they've now made it super easy, not this stupid experience of opening a wallet and opening this. And it, it all kind of works seamlessly. You get your money in and out of your bank, and you know there's not all the questions of everything because the central banks can record where that money goes because they own the blockchain for the central bank digital currency. So I just think things accelerate faster than you think. Because don't forget, if we double from here, we go from 200 million users to 400 million users. Double again, we're at 800 million. Double again, 1.6 billion. That happens quick. Yeah. And I think today, in Australia especially, I know across the world is a little bit different, but in Australia, it feels like we're almost moving to a cashless society already. You know, there's not a lot of places that accept physical cash anymore. So we're kind of, the transition is so minimal to move then. I just never use cash. I never do because it's just a pain. Now, there's a lot of concerns about, well, privacy and blah, 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 but actually nobody uses cash. Not many. Really? I mean, you barely use it for anything. And so, yeah, for a tip, only because we haven't made it really easy to give somebody a tip like that or whatever it may be. So, yeah, we're moving that way already. You know, money is being digitized already. And what do you think happens to fiat currency then? Are they all going to move, like you suggested? So fiat currency is a government's monopoly on the currency. We've now created these global currencies, which are the cryptocurrencies. But if you live in Australia, the Australian government wants you to use their currency, much like if you're in the Bitcoin ecosystem, you need to use Bitcoin. Okay, So you have to use the Aussie dollar. And to be part of that ecosystem, like in Ethereum, you have to pay fees, which is taxes. In Ethereum, it's called gas. You know, So it's very similar. It's how economies run. You need that money to support the network, which is the society we live in. So fiat currency is not going to go away. Now, can central banks adopt, you know, let's say, Bitcoin onto their balance sheet? Sure. Are they going to use it as the means of payment within their economy? Why would they give that away? They want their own. Now, the good thing is, is having this new world means if we don't like what they're doing to our currency, we can leave which is not as easy as it was before. You know, for you to say, well, I'm, I'm going to move into the Japanese economy and own yen. <laughs> well, it's not easy because it's not convertible. You can't go and buy a coffee in yen in Australia. But you can with crypto or you can convert it instantaneously. It's just a different setup of flexibility to opt out of the system of money that we're not comfortable with. Mm, yes. And over the last week, we have seen Russia come out and talk about banning crypto. And we've seen a few countries do that before. How are governments going to have to change and evolve to be able to embrace this? Look, people are struggling with regulation. You need to think, okay, what is Russia trying to do here? Well, let's go back to China, who did ban it. What are China trying to do? Do they not want their people ever to use cryptocurrencies? Well, they already are. They, they're doing it via Singapore. They're doing it via else. It's very hard on the internet to stop people doing it. I think what they're trying to do is they want to launch their central bank digital currency. So to keep stock of who owns what currency before you start a new system, you want to stop people leaving your system. Then you capture it all and say, right, we now know where all the money is, and we can now monitor it as it moves around. Because blockchain allows them to do that. I mean, it's not private. you know. So if you are a Chinese citizen using the digital yuan, you send it into Bitcoin, it goes into DeFi, it comes back over here, they know exactly where it's gone. So they have now can claim the fair share of taxes, make sure no cheating is going on, that kind of stuff. So I think Russia is doing something similar. For what purpose? Not entirely clear. But they said they were going to ban it, not the use of it, they were going to ban mining. And then today they came back and said they're not. 
So this is making noise, I think. <laughs> Which everyone seems to do and go up and down about it. I think a really interesting point, we had Dr. Aaron Lane, who's a researcher here in Australia, on the pod a few weeks ago. And he was talking about the fact that when you're creating a DAO or you're wanting to create something based on blockchain, if you've got a laptop and you've got internet, you can almost do that anywhere in the world. And so it does feel like it's in government's favors to really support blockchain activity. And so it is strange that you know people are going against that. Well, because they're fearful of it, right? Most governments are run by older people, for starters, so they're more fearful of technology. Technological change is a really big issue for people. They're finding they're struggling to keep up. You know, my mother struggles with bloody email, let alone having a Zoom call, and then let alone dealing with trying to set up a crypto wallet. But so all of this is hard for people to adjust to because it's changing so fast. And governments just don't want to screw it up. They just don't want it to all go wrong where they've suddenly allowed something to happen that was too powerful for them. I get it. Not much they can do about it as the internet taught us because everybody's now connected. So I just think they're trying to slow it down so they can come to grips with it. And who's leading the space at the moment, in your opinion? Well, the US has led the space in terms of innovation. There's been a huge amount of innovation coming out of uh, Southeast Asia. South Korea particularly has been exceptionally good. Singapore's probably done the best job of regulating. So they've done a great job. Switzerland have done a pretty good job with it as well. Europe's kind of nowhere in this, which is kind of weird. Australia's done not a bad job. They've had a few flip-flops of deciding what's allowable and what's not, but they've not done a bad job. So it's a bit of a mixed bag so far. India's done a total mess and then a U-turn and then now uncertainty. But I think over time, I think people just get more comfortable with it. I mean, there's no point arguing about, you know, should people be allowed to trade Bitcoin when everyone's trading monkey JPEGs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's gone well past that now. It has. The train has left the station. Now, yeah. before we go, aside from Real Vision, which will definitely pop in the show notes, as I mentioned, I love it personally so much myself. Are there any books or resources you'd recommend to people that are wanting to learn about cryptocurrency and blockchain? You know, it's moving too fast for a book to remain relevant. <laughs> And what we're all finding is like you, we're all consuming content everywhere. So you have to listen to high quality podcasts. You have to be on Twitter and you, you know, you could probably use Reddit, but it's just, it's probably not as good. The broad base of people on Twitter, crypto Twitter is great. You know, so you can just find me on there and see who I follow. Some of the people I interact with. That's a good way. I don't think there's any books that really help you with it because. You know, don't forget 18 months ago, DeFi didn't exist, nor did NFTs. Mm -hmm. And it takes about a year to write a book and get it published. So, (laughs) Yeah, I've been writing very fast. Are there any books then in the macro investing space or I guess mindset space that you'd recommend? To understand macro investing, there's a couple of great books. Just to understand investing in general, there's any of the books by George Soros, who's one of the most famous speculators of all time. He wrote a couple of books, Soros and Soros and the Alchemy of Finance. They're really interesting. To get you to think and live in the future, to make bets, not on the information you have today, but where you think the information is going so you can prosper. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about this could be 100x in 10 years' time. Because what we're saying is, okay, the opportunity of this is huge compared to the risk of this, down 50%, up 100x in terms of that. These are the things. There's a great book also called Market Wizards and New Market Wizards by Jack Schwager, where he interviews some of the most famous investors in the world. I think those books are a really useful think this through. There's a good book about technology and investing where crypto comes in, which is The Price of Tomorrow by Jeff Booth. Mm-hmm. 
That's a really interesting book. And there was another one from Victor Stett, who's an Aussie, who was based in Australia, and I can't remember his book, but it was much around the same technological age investing and how crypto fits into that. Amazing. We'll find it and we'll pop it in the show notes for you guys. So you can check all of those out. Well, it's been amazing having you on the podcast today. So many insights and so much wonderful information. We will definitely pop everywhere for people to find you, but thank you so much for coming on. Thanks very much. And look, everybody enjoy the volatile ride. It's all part of the game. Oh yeah. Hang on guys. Thank you so much for joining us for today's show. If you liked it, don't forget to head over to the gram and join us at Tapping Into Crypto. And before we finish up, just a general disclaimer that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. And the opinions on this podcast belong to individuals and are not affiliated with any companies mentioned. Any advice is general in nature and does not take into account your own personal situation. If you're looking to get advice, please seek out the help of a licensed financial advisor. We'll talk to you soon. 